Well, great to be with you again tonight. Um, we're going to continue our series through the book of Ruth, Redeemed, the Ruth story, we are calling it. And um, it is a sweet, I believe, and just a powerful story when you think about it and try to put it in the whole context of Scripture, as we're trying to do um, here. And, um, and tonight we're going to talk about when the Lord shows his hand. So act two of the story of Ruth, when the Lord shows his hand. But before we get started, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this opportunity and this privilege to stand before you and to think about your plan that you're working, God, throughout history and to see the beauty of it in this little in this little story of Ruth, the Lord, this story that to many just may seem uh, just maybe kind of insignificant, the story of just a handful of people in ancient Israel. But Lord, this is your story. And um and we are we are not unlike Ruth, God and Naomi. Uh our stories are those stories who uh, sometimes is filled with pain and loss and sorrow. But Lord, we learn that in the midst of it, God, you're still working. And you still have a plan. And that you're going to redeem, Lord, what sin has taken. And so, Lord, teach us, God. Show us. Uh, help us learn from you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. And I'm calling this sermon, When the Lord Shows His Hand. Uh, that's a card-playing term, phrase. Uh, sometimes we play Uno with the kids, and they, quite don't, they don't quite understand the strategy as part of the game. Is you, you, you're not supposed to show everybody what you got. <laughs> You know, because then I'll know, you know, I can, I can, pl- I can, I know if you got something I need or I, I know what, you know, I know what kind of strategy to play because I know what you're working with. It's an expression that we use showing your hand about revealing your plan or your motives. The Bible says that the secret things belong to the Lord. There are things that God does that he doesn't owe us an explanation for. There are things that God is working that we don't have the capacity to see where he's going with it, even though he knows. But sometimes, sometimes the Lord in his kindness and mercy and condescension, he shows us, he gives us a glimpse, a taste of where he may be going with it to help us, to uphold us, to help us not lose hope in the difficult in certain difficult situations in life, he, he gives it, he, he, he tips his hand. And sometimes, just as an act of mercy, kind of shows us where he's going. And this, I believe, is what he does with Ruth in this part of the story in Acts chapter 2. And I think there's a lot we can learn from this a part of the story. So, redeemed Acts chapter 2 when the Lord shows his hand. And so, now, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's word. We're going to read Ruth. Uh, Chapter 2, the whole chapter. 
Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite sent to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to, the, to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Who's, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that, you have, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed to be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked with and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three um, uh, aspects of the Lord's uh, kindness to us uh, in the story of Ruth this evening. Number one, we see the providence of the Lord. Number two, the protection of the Lord. And number three, the preservation of the Lord. 
the providence of the Lord, the protection of the Lord, and the preservation of the Lord. First, we see the providence of the Lord. We see this in verses 1 through 7. As we are brought back to this village where these two little widows have returned to Bethlehem, and they've made quite a stir. Uh, They've made quite a stir in this little town after uh, Naomi had left 10 years earlier with a wife and two sons, and she comes back with no one except a daughter-in-law, a Moabitess. And as we said before, there was little that these women could do in terms of self-provision. And they were truly at the generosity and the kindness of others. And I said, I've called this sermon, The Lord Shows His Hand. And the, the narrator of this story primes the pump a little bit for us by hinting beforehand that Naomi has a relative of her husband, who is, he specifically called, um, he specifically called here, um, a worthy man in verse 1. A worthy man. Now this is notable because remember that this story is occurring during the time of the judges. Now you remember the book of Judges. There weren't many noble men during these days. But here is Boaz and he's a noble man. And it's, it's just, this story I think is just so fascinating and so encouraging because it gives a snapshot of just life in this season in Israel's history. Boaz wasn't one of the judges. He wasn't a mighty valiant warrior. He wasn't leading Israel into, uh, uh, into victory in battle. He was a farmer, but he was a worthy man, and he was a righteous man, and he cared for, and he treated others well and righteously in the fear of God. And uh, he was a, the, uh, the narrator tells us, a relative, a redeemer of uh, Elimelech and of, therefore of Naomi and Ruth. And Ruth, in this part of the story, goes out and she chooses a field in which to glean in the hopes that the owner of the property might show favor to her. You see, God had already made a provision in the law for those like Naomi and Ruth in order to provide for those who might find themselves in difficult circumstances like these. We read of it in Deuteronomy 24. It says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So God specifically commanded the Israelites, and especially in an agrarian society, the landowners, or, but, but really any, any workman or any business person, that they were not to squeeze every possible drop of profit out of their labor, but rather they were to trust God by leaving some behind to do what? To help the needy. And in so doing, they were trusting God that they didn't have to squeeze every drop of profit. Life Life wasn't about the profit margin. It was about fearing God 
and loving and helping other people. There's something for us to learn there. Helping those in need. You see, sometimes we as modern Americans and, you know, and, 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 and even within Christian circles, this can be very popular. We consider it close to godliness to pinch pennies, to find a good deal. We consider it good stewardship, and of course good stewardship is important, but there's also such thing as sinful pinching pennies too. Because you can love money more than you can love others. You can be so keen on finding a good deal that you might not even realize it, but you're taking advantage of someone who just really might need the, the help for something that's worth a decent price. Built into the law according to God's word was generosity. Don't strip your fields bare. Leave some behind for those in need. And the key verse here is in verse 3. And it, 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 it says there that Ruth happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And this verse is so important, although it might not stand out to us, because of the way it, it's written in Hebrew, it, it gives a little more emphasis. It literally reads... Ruth's chance chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz. And one commentator said it could be translated, by a stroke of luck, she ended up in Boaz's field. Now, of course, this is a little confusing, and we have to think about it biblically, because I have told you from behind this pulpit before that there's no such thing as luck. And the Bible actually teaches that there's no such thing as luck. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I would argue here that the Bible doesn't believe in luck, and neither even does the author of this story. The one true God of both the Old and New Testaments is the sovereign Lord over every roll of the die and every turn of the card in Vegas. Every hair on our heads, Jesus said, is numbered. Why then would the author say that Ruth's chance chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz? Well, I think if you're reading it rightly, when you read it, you can almost see the glint in the author's eye as he's writing this. Because we do this too when we tell stories about God's providence and God's kindness, don't we? We'll say things like, yeah, and then this just happened to happen. You see? And when we do that, what we are saying, we are, we're, we're saying not that it really happened. What we, are, what we are implying is God was in control of it. You know, when I, when I felt the Lord impressing upon me that it was a season of transition in my life and a season to go to seminary in my life, yeah, it just happened that I applied to the internship when a new three-year cycle was just about to start. It just happened that I got into that internship program, and it just happened that that was the last program that would ever occur. No, that was, there was no just happening. It was a sovereign God intending over every detail, including the specific time in which I chose to apply. Opening the door for me to fulfill the calling that he had placed upon my life. And so when, we, when the author says her chance just chanced upon the field that belonged to Boaz, what the author is really saying is that look what God did for Ruth. He is actually turning our eyes heavenward 
and saying that what just happened to Ruth was the sovereign hand of an almighty God beginning his plan for redemption. And so we, we need to rejoice as Christians and apply our understanding of God's sovereignty. Because if God is sovereign over things like, where will I glean today? Is he not also sovereign over things like, where will I shop today? Where do I live today? Who are my neighbors today? Why is this person standing beside me in line today? Why is this person checking me out at the grocery store today? Why is this waiter or waitress serving me in this restaurant today? Isn't he sovereign over these things too? And might not these things that just that are chance chances upon, may they actually be much more than chances, but guidance of an almighty God working something in our life, or how about this, working something in their life, the person whom we chanced upon, just as Ruth chanced upon Boaz. Maybe these things aren't really chance at all, but God putting us in situations so that we can play the act of redemption as Boaz did for Ruth. We who have been touched and changed and received the message of the glory of the grace of God brought us into contact with these other people so that we may extend that grace to others. And note also here that in Ruth's situation, all this is taking place after what? Well, after being widowed. (laughs) After what many people call great hardship. Which it is, a great loss, a great pain. And, and if you read the beginning of the story of Ruth and you think about the hardship and the fact that Naomi, for example, wants to change her name to Bitter. After all that, people would be tempted to look at Ruth and Naomi and say, well, God's not present there. God isn't working. Look at what happened. But then you, but you got to read the story. Because the whole point of this story is that even despite the difficult, painful things that happened in their past, that doesn't mean God wasn't working. And that doesn't mean God isn't working now. And if the story tells us anything, it tells us that God is working before, during, and after the pain. You see, this, our culture today has got this terrible lie fed to them by the devil that tells them, and a part of it too is probably the church's fault because we've, we've, we've soft-pedaled the gospel and taught little children and, and just taught people to believe that God's primary goal for your life is just to make you happy. And so the second that somebody's life gets a little bit hard, the first person they blame is him. God's point in creating the universe was not so that you could be, was not so that you could have fleeting or just worldly happiness. God doesn't, God doesn't, God didn't place the stars in the, in the, in the, in the sky and God didn't form the oceans with his hand and he didn't, he doesn't superintend over every tiny detail for just, for just for our fleeting happiness. He's doing it for his great and ultimate glory and your deep and full and real and lasting joy in him forever. And what if God in our lives is working out a trillion details like he did in Ruth's life throughout the entire course of our lives to bring us 
to a place of not just fleeting, worldly, self-centered happiness, which is what most people want, but deep, full, humble, meek, God-centered, and others-focused, true, real, deep happiness that can only come not apart from loss, that come, but comes through loss, through pain, through suffering. What if our joy in the end in God forever will be infinitely deeper precisely because it was refined through the fire of trials? In fact, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. So, the point is this. Is God is sovereign. It's the providence of the Lord. He's the God of history. He's working through Ruth's life. He hasn't forgotten. He's still working. He's still acting. And yes, God will call us sometimes to endure hard things. That doesn't mean that he's stopped working. It means that he's working something greater than we could possibly imagine. And as the, some old great preacher said, when you, can't, when you can't trace his hand, you must trust his heart. So number one here, we see the providence of the Lord. Number two, we see the protection of the Lord. The protection of the Lord. We see God's protection for Ruth in uh, a few ways here. First, we see it through Boaz, in that Boaz took responsibility for Ruth. In verses 8 and 9 there, uh, it says, uh, Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. You see what Boaz does? Ruth is a young Moabitess. She's a foreigner. She's an otherwise destitute widow. She would have been easy to take advantage of. And especially, first of all, these are just generally dark days in Israel anyways. And besides all that, add to that the fact that she's a foreigner and then she really would have had no hope of recourse against anybody who wanted to abuse her or to take advantage of her. But Boaz sees this, sees her vulnerability And rather than do nothing about it, he takes responsibility for her. He stands in the gap. He steps in to protect her, to see to it that she's not taken advantage of. And see, and this is a key point, too, I just think that we can learn from this. Because sometimes I just think, you know, we're content. You know, we just think, well, if we're just, if we're not taking advantage of somebody that we're okay. But I think, I think more often than not, God calls us to more than that. If we see someone in a vulnerable position, it's not just enough for us not to take advantage of them. It's for us. They need our help to help prevent others from taking advantage of them. For us to step into the gap and protect those who can't protect themselves. Because believe you me, if somebody in this world can be taken advantage of, somebody will take advantage of them. And so we is, is incumbent upon us as the church to see vulnerability and to go and step in and protect. You see, it's been said before that all that is required for evil to win is for good men to stand by and do nothing. 
But Boaz sees her, and he doesn't say that's someone else's problem. He says, I'm going to take responsibility for her. And secondly, one of the explicit ways that he does this is he protects her from abuse. He says there in verse um, 9, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? It's hard for us to imagine the sexual perversion and violence and wickedness that took place at this time. And, by the way, that takes place today, especially in places where there is little to no reliable rule of law. Or much worse, where the rule of law are the ones doing the abusing, which is very common in other parts of the world. You see... The only reason America is the way it is today is because it was birthed out of a Christian worldview. doesn't mean all of our founders were Christian, but it was birthed out of a Christian worldview. And we take for granted, we take for granted that Christian ethical heritage and morality. But you see, in other parts of the world, that's not true. It doesn't exist. And especially in other parts of the world where there's little to no reliable rule of law, then it's basically, it's like the old Wild West. You basically do whatever you want. If you can get away with it and there's no one to stop you, then guess what? You're going to do it. And your, your skin would crawl if you knew the things that men in this world do to young girls and to women. And the, the, the situations that they take advantage of in other parts of the world where they take people who are extreme poverty and say, well, hey, I'll give you so much money if you give me your daughter. Or... Or they deceive and say, hey, you give me your daughter, I'll take her over here and make sure she gets a good job and provide for her. Happens every day. There are more slaves today than there have ever been in the history of the world. Sex slaves and the like. It's hard for us to imagine, but it's real. It's happening everywhere. It happened then, it's happening now. Who will take responsibility Who will say, not on my watch? Our own state has one of the largest sex slavery hubs in the world out of Hartsville-Jackson International Airport. But Boaz protected her. He put himself out there to fight on her behalf. And the third way we see the Lord's protection in this story is through provision. Boaz provided for Ruth in verses 14 through 16. He told his harvesters not just to leave a little extra for her, but to even pull out from the bundles that they had harvested and to set it aside for her. And all of this is to be interpreted um, by verse 12 especially. But we can read verse 10 through 12. It says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But he answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So this is Boaz's response to Ruth. He sees Ruth who, who, who in her own way, you see that there's multiple heroes of this story. Of course, God is the hero of every story. 
But you have Boaz who acts as an agent of God. But not just Boaz, but you also have Ruth. Ruth is a hero in this story. She's the one who left family, who left kindred, who clung to her mother-in-law, even though she really owed Naomi no ultimate allegiance. And yet she clung to her and said, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And she was a Gentile. She had nothing to do with Israel. She didn't have the promises of God given to her. But she joined with Naomi and clung to her. And what did, in being a young widow, what did she give to Naomi? She gave Naomi hope. Because being a young widow of a Jewish man, that means that she was, she was uh, now, uh, it, she was, uh, it was possible for her then to, to be redeemed. That is to, uh, a redeemer could come and marry her and produce offspring for her to see so that the family line would not die. So Ruth is a hero in this story, but also Boaz. And what we see here in this, uh, what Boaz says to her is he, he tells Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So what happens then is that Boaz blesses Ruth, and says, the Lord bless you, Ruth. Why? Well, because you, Ruth, have come to him for refuge. So Boaz's understanding is this, is that the Lord protects those who come to him for refuge. You see, lots of people run to all kinds of things for safety and protection. Most of the time it's money and insurance policies. But Boaz says, you came to God to protect you. And the Lord will do so. The Lord will protect you. But get this. In the story of the in this story, who is the one who is the instrumental means of Ruth's protection? It's Boaz. It's Boaz. So Boaz says, The Lord, the Lord protect you. The Lord bless you because you have come to his wings to take refuge. But then who takes it upon himself to be the wings of God's refuge? Boaz. So do you see, what is, you see what's happening here? What's happening here is this, is that ultimately it wasn't Boaz protecting Ruth. It was God protecting Ruth through Boaz. And that's, what, that's a major part of what the story is about. What the story is to show us is that, yes, Boaz is a great man. He's a worthy man. He's a worthy man of emulation. But that's not what the story is ultimately about. The story is ultimately about, about how God is a is a kind, merciful, redeeming God. But he does, but God uses means to accomplish his ends, and the means he does that is his people. So when you and I act like Boaz, that is, when you and I deal righteously with others, when we care for others, when we take in others, when we meet the needs of others in Jesus' name and out of the fear of the Lord, knowing that we will give an account to him one day for our lives, and we walk righteously and do all that we can to help and serve others, we are, we are not just doing it or for ourselves, we are being agents of God's protection himself. When you're helping someone, it's God helping someone. When you give to someone, it's God giving to someone. That's why Jesus said, that's why Jesus said, well, look, when you give to the needy, he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Why? You know, don't proclaim from the news. Why? Because that person needs to know that it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. And guess what? You ain't got to worry about it because God's going to take care of you. You just be generous. You just love because he's watching. He's watching. 
and the ones that we help, they, all they need to know is all glory goes to God. When we care for others, we are being agents of God himself. Serving and protecting others. And by the way, the converse is true as well. And this, I think, is one of the most astounding things in the whole Bible when Jesus said, when you have done such to these, the least of these, you've done it to me. Every time you cook a meal and give it to someone, you've just cooked a meal for Jesus Christ. Every time you've helped someone in need, you've just helped out Jesus Christ. It's astounding. It's amazing. And so what does this mean practically? Well, we've talked about a, a lot. It just Practically, it just means being a neighbor, loving, helping, serving other people. There's, there's many ways that it can look like. I think a, a, a powerful and needed way uh, today uh, in, in, uh, in this day is fostering. Uh, Brother Lewis Miller spoke at the uh, annual meeting. Uh, he's a pastor at Grace. He also runs a nonprofit, Families for Families. I'm going to have him come speak some Sunday for us. Because he has one simple goal, and that is to get foster kids in Christian homes. Did you know that through fostering or, or, or things similar to that, you can have a child who's being abused one weekend and is in, his, in a loving home the next weekend? If every church in Georgia had one family who took in a foster child, it would eliminate the need for the foster system in the state of Georgia. It's one way, it's one way to do it. It's one way to do it. And of course, there's other ways too, by the way. I mean, it's, just, it's a great ministry and it's, it's a great need. Let's say, let's say uh, another way you can help is, is you, can help, you can help foster families. So if there's a family who's fostering, you can babysit, or you can help and you can provide. Uh, at, at Antioch Number 1, they have a house that's, that's just full of stuff that they give to foster families. Why? Because a family may be called at 2 in the morning and says, you need to come pick up this baby. Well, I don't have another car seat. Well, you can run down and go pick one up. And someone else can, you know, someone else, you call, you know, you can help. Someone can call and say, oh, I need you to watch my kids. i got to go pick up this kid over here. There are ways that we can help to make a difference to make a difference, to help those, to help these that God has called us to, the, the orphan, the widow, and the needy. It means helping those in need. Other ways, providing jobs for those who need and helping people find jobs, paying a fair wage, being hospitable and generous. There are numerous ministries that you can support that we've talked about that help fight sex trafficking. Which, by the way, does not get any of the media attention that it deserves. Why? Because this culture that we live in secretly knows that the sexual liberty and freedoms that they're proclaiming is what's actually fueling the sex slave trade. That's why they don't talk about it on the news. One of the the most direct ways we can do it is to, and I'm just going to be very direct here, refuse to watch pornography. Which, I don't even, it's a bane, not just in the culture, but in the church. And we'd be shocked to know the number of people who watch it. And I'm not, I'm not here to heap shame on anybody, but what I'm saying is that we don't, we don't understand the depths of the depravity of what pornography does to our mind, much less our society and our culture. 
and the, the it's a it's a billion upon billion dollar industry and business that people are monetizing the sexualization of women and the abuse of the weak and the needy. And so if we're watching it, what are you doing is you're fueling the, the industry that fuels the sex slave trade, by create, which creates, a, it creates both the market and increases the demand for the whole wicked enterprise. And there are other things, too, related to this. Predatory practices and things like drugs, which is rampant in our community, that just utterly destroys lives and homes and families. Gambling of all kinds including the lottery. I have opinions about that. You can ask me later. It preys on the poor. It preys on greed. Get rich quick. And the people who spend the most money on it are the ones who can't afford it. And when you start giving money to lawmakers' hands that way, you see it's, it's a lawmaker's way to get money in their pockets by preying on their own people who elected them into office. Just think about that. Predatory businesses and loans and business practices that already put people in poverty and crippling and irreconcilable debt. These are all things which we as Christians should stand against and protect others from insofar as we can. And when we do that, we are serving as the protection of God himself to others. So number one, the providence of the Lord. Number two, the protection of the Lord. Number three, the preservation of the Lord. The preservation of the Lord, we see this in verse 17 through 23. When Ruth gets home, when Ruth gets home, Naomi's floored. Where in the world did you glean today? Ruth shows up after a day of work with an ephah of barley, which is roughly 22 liters which would have been in the ballpark of 30 to 50 pounds of barley. Not too shabby for gleaning by hand. Not too shabby. And immediately Naomi knows that what she has taken in would be impossible apart from the grace of God through somebody noticing her and helping her. And she immediately says, Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Ruth humbly tells her that it was through God's grace, who it was that through God's grace had shown so brightly upon her, and that man's name was Boaz. And the key verse here is in verse 20, where, Ruth, uh, where Naomi says, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. You see, there's a blessing of those who honor the Lord. There's a blessing for those who honor the Lord, who cares for others. And above all this, Naomi says, blessed, um, blessed be he by the Lord. He says, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. I believe there she's talking about the Lord. That is, it's, it's the Lord's kindness who has not forsaken the living and the dead. Through this man, Boaz. Through this man's Boaz. In other words, to Naomi, Boaz is a symbol of what? Of the Lord's not forsaking them. Of the Lord's still present, still working in their life. What's the Lord doing? He's showing his hand. He's showing his hand. And notice here about Naomi. And remember I, I said a while back I'm kind of an optimist. She, wanted, she changed her name to Bitter. Bitter. 
But she hasn't given up on the war. She sees Boaz and what he has done for them, and she says, and she, she reflects on she has, and she says, the Lord hasn't forsaken me. He remembers. I just want to tell you tonight, maybe at some time in your life, maybe right now or sometime in the future, you're going to think, the Lord's forsaken me. No, he hasn't. He hasn't forsaken you. The way we can know that for us is not Boaz. It's Jesus. We can always look to the cross and know Jesus hasn't forsaken us. He's referring, she's referring to the Lord. He hasn't forsaken them. God hasn't forsaken Naomi. He hasn't forsaken Ruth. He hasn't forsaken Elimelech and his family. He's preserving them an offspring in the land of promise, an inheritance among their brothers. Remember the inheritance for them, the reception of the land and an inheritance. That's why the whole that's what the whole Jubilee was about, right? You couldn't keep someone another clan's land in perpetuity. Why? Because God gave them the land. The land was not just theirs because of ownership. They, you know, you buy and you sell. It was theirs in perpetuity because it was a gift of God. The land really represented for Israel salvation. And so God preserving, God cutting off a name or a family in the land would be them basically, in a sense, in essence, losing salvation, being cut off from their inheritance in the Lord's land of promise. But she's, but precisely what she's saying is that through Boaz, God has not forsaken them, but has remembered them, remembered Elimelech, remembered the family. And is working something greater than they can imagine. And a key part of this is that Naomi says that Boaz is a redeemer. He calls, she calls him a redeemer. The Hebrew term there is, is, is goel. And it's used in the law to refer to a relative who had the responsibility and privilege to help those in his family or clan who had experienced hardship or trial or were a victim of a crime. For example, kind of like a, what we read a little bit earlier. If somebody in your family or your clan uh, found themselves in poverty and slavery, and they, let's say they got themselves in a bunch of debt and uh, could not repay, and so the way they did that back then is, I mean, you know, <laughs> none of this uh, government paying all debt forgiveness. You got yourself in it. You got to get yourself out of it. You have to sell yourself into slavery to work off your debt. But let's say you have a family member over here who sees you in servitude. And they say, that's my, that's my family. They have the right, the Bible says, of redemption. That is, I'll go and I'll pay their debt so that person can be set free and then come back to the family land. Come back to the family. Boaz was a redeemer. He was a goel. And apparently the role of goel came, became also mixed with the, what we talked about before as the, the practice of Leverite marriage, which is where the, the brother would marry the widow to preserve the family line. It seems that that concept was extended to the, to the goel if uh, there wasn't a brother present to, to fulfill that duty, that responsibility. Boaz was such a relative to Naomi and Ruth. He was in a position to redeem, to not let the family name be cut off. 
And so that faithful that, that fateful day thousands of years ago, don't forget these are real people. When a young Moabitess named Ruth, when her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz, God hadn't forgotten. God was working. God was acting. It wasn't a coincidence. It was redemption. It was God saving a family, granting offspring, preserving a bloodline. So that they, and as we'll find out later, we might live forever in the land of promise. So what we see is the providence of the Lord, the protection of the Lord, the preservation of the Lord. You see, Boaz was a redeemer, but the story points us to a far greater redeemer. You see, the Bible says that you and I were in slavery, were in servitude. We had sold ourselves to our sin. And we had no hope of escape. We had put ourselves in so great a debt that there's no possible way we could repay it. But the Bible says that we had a brother, a kinsman, someone who was in every way as we were. Yet, one difference was that he was without sin. He had never indebted himself. And he looked upon us as brothers and sisters, and he saw the debt that we had got ourselves into, and he said, you know what? I'm going to exercise my right of redemption. And he goes and he pays the debt so that we can come back to the family. That man's name is Jesus Christ. He is the Redeemer. And if you don't know Jesus tonight, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be redeemed. If you turn from your sin, believe in Jesus and follow him, you can come back to the family too. And I pray that'll happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the scriptures.